Hey everyone, it's Michael here at Facilitate and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Facilitate Talks. This week's episode is the first in a two-part series featuring Lance Holland of Bluebird Bio and Nina Bauer at Millipool Sigma. And it became a two-part series because we got to the end of our allocated time for the first episode and um, the conversation was just fantastic and we were adamant that we just had to roll this into a two-parter and, and come back and revisit the, the conversation. So we talk about everything from manufacturing, vectors, and we also talk about inclusion and diversity within the biotech community as well as the conference space as well. It's one of the best episodes that I've, I've been a part of and I really hope you enjoy it. And another thank you to Anthony, Nina and Lance for being a part of this show. So without further ado, I'm going to roll on the show and hope you enjoy it. We're in the middle of doing process validation runs, PPQ runs um, uh, for a viral vector uh, manufacturing. And, you know, the, the process that we run, it's with a CMO. They're doing the actual manufacturing and we're overseeing it um, as the sponsor. And they're in the EU and we're in the US and everyone's homebound, right? And so I think one of the things that we run into in this global pandemic situation is um, how do we collaborate better when we're physically removed? Um, you know, there's the Teams meetings and there's teleconferences, but we've also got different time zones. Ideally, if we were in this and we've done this before with other, with other CMOs, we actually have folks physically in the site, person in plant, whether it's quality or technical. Um, and, and where we find ourselves right now, that's not an easy thing to do. So, you know, the question would be, are there out of the box ideas or, or what kind of things maybe has this panel or other folks experienced when it comes to understanding there's, there's to a certain extent, you, the, the person in planned and that physical touch or that personal touch and physically close to each other uh, has a lot of benefits. So what are some ideas or strategies that people have used to, to kind of overcome that hurdle? Or do we sort of resort back to that model and you look at different ways to actually get people to the physical location? So I'm really curious in the panel's perspective on helping to solve that kind of a problem. Hi, and thanks for joining us at Facilitate Talks. I'm Michael Adenia, the Portfolio Director at Facilitate. And I'm Anthony Davies, the Founder and Chief Executive of Dark Horse Consulting Group. And if you're joining us for the first time, Facilitate Talks is a socially distanced talk show for the Advanced Therapies community, where Anthony and I are always joined by two fantastic guests to dig into the big issues for our community. And there's always a twist, isn't there, Anthony? There is, Michael, always a twist. And what is that twist? I don't know. I, yeah, I just read that off my script. No, <laughs> the twist is, uh, the, the, you know, the, the twist is that this is an open forum, okay? And we, we do not over-rehearse. We, we systemically under-rehearse, partly because we're busy and disorganized, and partly because we want a candidate exchange. So that's the, that's the twist uh, for this week. Sorry about that, guess, if Michael didn't explain to you beforehand. So rather than Anthony and I owning the stage and asking all the questions, it's over to our guests. And speaking of our guests, our first guest today has over 10 years experience commercializing stem cells and cell therapies. Her undergrad 
was in biology at the Karl von Esietzky University, I hope I pronounced that right, in Germany, before moving to New York to do a master's in neuroscience and quickly followed, up that, and quickly followed that up with a couple of postdoc projects in San Diego as well as Israel. She spent a lot of time on both sides of the Atlantic working for Lonza in the commercial, in the commercial development team in Basel with the Cell and Gene Therapy Catapult, our good friends in London, and the Centre for Regenerative Medicine in Edinburgh, Scotland as well, which I believe she calls her spiritual home. She joined Flow Design Sonics as Chief Commercial Officer back in 2018, and Flow Design was then acquired by Millipore Sigma in October 2019. Then there was a pandemic, and that brings us here to today. So, Nina Bauer, welcome to the show. I'm also pleased that I get to call you a friend as well, which is awesome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a privilege to be your friend. And our second guest studied zoology as an undergrad, um, but saw an opportunity to also work for Lonza um, as a manufacturing technician in the last year of his studies and went on to spend seven and a half years there working in process engineering and various other manufacturing roles. He then spent just shy of eight years at Shire, um, mainly in management roles. That, that was definitely not intended. <laughs> mainly in management roles in engineering, quality Don't assurance. Don't do that again, Michael. <laughs> shire, shire, shire. I can't believe that happened, yeah. <laughs> um, just shy of eight years at Shire, mainly in management roles in engineering, quality assurance, upstream manufacturing, and, and also championed continuous improvement. And today he's with Bluebird Bio, which he joined in 2018, and is three months into a new role as Associate Director of External Vector Manufacturing. Welcome to the podcast, Lance Holland. Hey, thanks for having me. Really uh, appreciate you having me and excited for this forum. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. And your job title isn't a fair reflection of your role, is it, Lance? Because vector manufacturing is, is only part of what you do from when we spoke. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so, yeah, my, my role is a little bit more complex than that, but it's, but it's also exciting. Um, I actually oversee or, or help support external manufacturing on the plasmid side of business as well as the vector manufacturing so we're sort of built in a way that we support um, certain cmos in certain regions and so i've got responsibility for some cmos in the eu nice and on the plasmid side anthony i, I texted you a few weeks ago and said uh, uh, yeah. our research team you know we facilitates research team at yeah, they do sort of agenda research and various kind of project research around various, uh, with various people in, in the industry. And um, a couple of them said to me that they, they shared some, some interesting things happening in the plasmid space and said, you know what, you guys should facilitate talks about this. And I texted Anthony and said, Anthony, it's plasmids. I think it's something we should be talking about. And you just sent in big capital letters, yes, and several yes. exclamation marks. Why was that? We haven't, we haven't talked about it since. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, is the answer. Um, look, uh, Lance, you know, you, your, your process is ridiculous because um, 
I think stupid is the vernacular, stupid in the sense of being crazy, right? Rather than being stupid. So uh, you are using plasmid as a <laughs> critical raw material. You know, plasmid in itself is ridiculously complex, uh, is a drug product in its own right in, in, in many historical trials and so forth. And you're using that as a critical raw mat for viral vector, okay? which is a critical raw material of enormous complexity, also drug product in its own right, uh, in many trials and so forth, for your product. <laughs> so you've got three levels of huge complexity and criticality. You've got ridiculously complex plasma that's going to ridiculously complex viral vectors going to ridiculously complex <clears throat> product, because you know, cell therapy just isn't hard enough uh, in the pure play sense of pulling stem cells out of the product. Um, I don't know how you all orchestrate this stuff. It is so complicated and plasmid sits right at the top of the food chain there. Uh, I think it's really, I didn't actually know that you have responsibility for plasmid as well as vector. I think that makes a ton of sense. Uh, so how's that all working out for you? Having those two, uh, big things under your wing. Yeah, that's a, it, that's a great question. Um, it's funny, I actually started on the drug product manufacturing side and then just recently transitioned to the plasma, uh, plasmid in the vector. Um, you know, there is a natural fit there. It, it does make a lot of sense, um, but it also does add a lot of complexity. And I, and I think, um, but it's great, honestly. I mean, I love learning about it. I'm just getting started with the plasmid. I'd say I, I know the least uh, amount about that, but it's great to hear you sort of say that there are three products in and of themselves because it certainly feels that way. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it really is. There's a lot that goes into it. Um, there's, you know, you've got a disposition and release and, and, and do the QC testing on all of those. Um, so yeah, we certainly don't have a, um, it, it's not easy, but it's, but it's exciting and, and uh, it's been great, you know, and, and just really cool to see kind of that entire uh, life cycle, right. From, from the plasmid all the way through to drug product and we get oversight and visibility into all of that. Um, so for, for someone that's just now entering the cell and gene therapy space, I get, I get a lot of visibility on the whole thing and it's, it's really exciting. You also I think again, Michael, one, of, one of the things, Michael, is the, is the sourcing of plasmid. That's one of the things which we'll uh, get stuck into uh, down the road when we, when we do that, that uh, podcast. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, it's a no, notorious, the field notorious for being dominated by a small number of players, uh, plasmid supply, and there's a sort of nod, row of nodding heads there um, from everybody. Um, we all know a little bit about who we're talking about. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to defer there. I actually would be quite interested to bring Lance back uh, for a few comments uh, when we do the plasmid session, Michael, but we'll, we'll leave it there i think for now uh you know, nina you you know, you've, you've orchestrated complex supply chains uh going all the way back to plasmid uh and all the way back down um it's what's it been like from where you sat particularly earlier in your career uh at lonzo where you and lance uh both did time did time that sounds like a, a fail sentence <laughs> well Wait, sorry lonzo <laughs> um 
No, when I was at Lonza, I was uh, head of autologous cell therapy, which at the time was just on the cusp of starting in on the whole CAR T space. And uh, during my entire time there, I always said, I'm glad I don't have to deal with viral vector manufacturing, which is my raw material. And that's all I need to worry about. And now I'm at uh, Millipore Sigma in charge of viral vector manufacturing. So um, <laughs> be careful what you say, it, because life usually turns against you on that one. But um, to be honest, it's it's been, I mean, similar to Lance, it's been a really interesting um, development for me to, to learn more about viral vector manufacturing and and looking at things from that angle. But uh, I, I mean, I can only confirm that uh, vector, um, Plasmid supply is is a continuous topic for everyone. Um, and as you say, there's only a handful of um, manufacturers on that front. Um, and uh, when I was at Lanza, the question was always, are you thinking of going in that direction? Can you supply that for us? And we usually said, no, thank you. Um, and that is because it is just as complex as, as viral vector and cell therapy. And, and we already have those very, very complex um, products in our, in our service offering and adding another one um, just, you know, isn't, I would say from an industry perspective and from a commercial perspective is not necessarily all that attractive because cell and gene are inherently poor when it comes to margins as a manufacturer. Yeah. And that's looking back on the industry in general. Um, it's just, it's very complicated, very hands-on, very manual. Um, and so usually from what I've seen over my industry life cycle, it's just you pick one or, one or two of the ones, but you don't want to go the whole hog. Try and, and simplify them all. it. You know what? That it's actually, risk mitigation, really. That yeah. reminds me. Um, I put I posted something on LinkedIn a few weeks ago, just relating to to this exactly. I, I, I was doing some desk research. And I found a comment around the fact that I think about a year ago, vectors made up thirty percent of the cost of goods for a CAR T therapy. And um, I asked a question a few weeks ago: What is it today? Because I know, as you know, as we we all are aware, it everyone is talking about. Vectors and 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 producing them, has that is, was thirty percent right in the first place, and has it changed up or down? Like, do either of you have an an estimate in your head? You know, you can obviously speaking on behalf of yourselves as individuals rather than the companies you represent. But is thirty percent about right, and has that changed? Was that from our paper? I think it might have been a dark horse. We published paper, on this just over two years ago. No, two and a half yeah. years ago, we published on this. Yeah, I think it might have been a statement from you, actually, Anthony. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I think we, about we published it. Published paper one. I, I just went blah blah blah, but we actually published. Katie Spink and Andrew Steinzapier from Dark Horse published a paper on this uh, two and a half years ago, analyzing essentially analyzing in all but name, yes, Carter, uh, Cogs, and uh, and the relationship between the, the pricing. Uh, for those early car T's and um, you know then to my ears and I you know I, I don't have any individuality I sort of am dark horse I guess uh, but personally professionally I think 30% sounds sort of spot-on um, then and now but I'd, I'd really be interested in hearing what Lance's uh, sort of gut feel is for that yeah I mean that that sounds like it's in the ballpark for sure and it depends on, I was just going to say, it depends on the type of uh, vector that you're talking about as well. 
Um, you know, there's different modalities to it. And then if you're factoring in the plasmid as well, right, I, I think it, it can go up or down from there. For yeah. Sure. And just for the, um, yeah, just, just if we, we're all making disclaimers about our comments. I'm not a scientist in one way, in any shape or form. I am a conference organizer, but I like to talk about cost and money. And yeah, 30% does sound like a huge chunk. Are we trying to get that down? Is it, how, can we get it down? I mean, yeah, we're trying to look, if, uh, I, my other intro to Miami this year was that we're, we're, the field is sleepwalking into a Cox crisis. Okay. That one of the drawdowns of that paper we published was that the margins being pulled on uh, yes, Carte, Lux Turner, and Kim Raya uh, were not only, uh, you know, they were not excessive relative to margins being pulled by biologics and even small molecules and MedDev, uh, but in fact, for some of those early products and ones that have been uh, licensed since that year when the three came on the market, uh, margins are worse. And, you know, this just can't sit well with any fiscally responsible GNA division of a, of a pharmaceutical or biotech company because at the end of the day, you're going to go broke doing this. Um, and we feel those price points were set as, you know, reasonable, in fact, almost humble multiples of the COGS. And that means the COGS is out of control expensive and um, something has got to be done here because otherwise we're cruising for a bruising in the sense that a, a large indication like the one Biomarin's going for the ticket for later this year and a few others, a large indication is going to get approved and the, the price point is going to be set at a, at a level which is just not uh, compatible with um, healthcare economics. So I think you know, your concern, I, I, you know, I couldn't agree with you more, Michael. Uh, it, the mm. pricing must come down. There's no way around that and yeah vectors are a huge chunk of the pricing and plasmids a huge chunk of the vector pricing um yeah. so you know i mean lance and you know it, with or without your metaphor sigma hat on nina you, you you must both feel huge pressure uh to bring economies in and i i, I would just be interested in your perspectives on you know, is there any chance this is going to happen anytime soon? I can, or oh, go ahead, Nina. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've been, I mean, you guys, you've, you've known me for a long time. So this has always been a topic for me and this is, this is independent of who I've worked for, but more in terms of um, what I do. And so, yes, we have done models around COGS and, and uh, the 30% sounds reasonable. It depends on, how you evaluate COGS and what you count into it, right? How much of the of the manual labor do you count into it? Do you count testing and quality control into it or not and things like that? So it'll oh, shift. We count but, it all in. We, 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 we throw it all in. Absolutely we do because it's there. But, but so with that said, there's there's obviously different levers that you can take. And yes, viral vector is, is uh, one big chunk, um, but also uh, manual labor is, is another massive one. So, you know, yep. um, during... My lifetime, we've always looked at automation and, and how can we make manufacturing more robust. Um, the other thing is um, 
while I love cell and gene therapy and, and I will forever work in that space, I hope that I will not revisit that statement at a later stage. I always feel that um, we are also still ways away from really understanding our products well enough um, and make and and I think we have a chance of once we really really understand the mode of action and the biology um, we can quality control much more significantly and we might move to much smaller doses over time um, I, I think that's that's where I'd like to always maintain a, a very holistic way of looking at cogs um, and then you know you can always move into non-viral eventually and say look let's move away from this ultra complex viral raw material and see is there something else like CRISPR or um, what else there may be that, that we can look at, right? And I think uh, the industry is still in its infancy and, and we've been saying that for the last 20 years, I'm sure, but um, it's going to happen next year or the year after or the year after. And, uh, but I think we're, we're making progress every day. And it's yeah, oh, sorry, go ahead, Lance. I know you had a, a, couple, of com a couple of thoughts on this as well. Yeah, no worries. No, I mean, I, I was just going to say that I agree with what Nina's saying. And I also will say that one of the things I love about Bluebird, and I know it's this is more on, on my behalf and not the company's, but, you know, we really are patient focused. And our priority is just to get a good quality product out. And we're not even really, and, and I know that we need to, and we, and we will, but we're not even really focused on the cost piece. We're really just trying to make sure that um, we're doing our, are putting our best foot forward in terms of the science and the manufacturing process and the quality control and quality assurance. Um, that's not to say that we're ignoring it because what we are starting to do more and more is to really evaluate um, the ways of working and the efficiencies and looking at KPIs and metrics and, and really starting to measure ourselves about, you know, where we're currently at and, you know, let those metrics drive improvements and opportunities and efficiency. And so, um, COGS is obviously a part of that, and there's a recognition that we do need to drive that down. Um, but there's a lot of other things that we also have to address and fix and make more efficient as well. And so that's kind of where a lot of our focus is. But, but yes, of course, you know, the goal is always to be um, to reduce those COGS so that we can provide more benefit to the patients in the long run. But um, where we're at right now is really just get a very good process put together and, and go commercial and then let's work it out from there. So a value to patients first approach uh, is really where, where you guys are coming from. But also I love the fact, um, yeah, what you're just saying there about sort of over time, you, you, you'll be measuring um, as you go on, but in your background, um, continuous improvement is something that is that I, I've seen on, on your CV in a couple of places as well. So is that something that you're always thinking about as well? Yeah, you know, for better or for worse, I can't think any other way. Um, I've always been interested in how do we do it better? How do we do it more efficient? Um, and we all, we all walk into a situation and you want to leave it better than the way that you found it. Um, and certainly one of the ways to do that is to use data to drive decisions and drive improvements. So that's, um, the beauty is, is that really we've all embraced that. And I think there's a lot of folks that have joined Bluebird from biologics or other maybe, I don't want to say more mature, but, but longer track record commercial operations where you just don't know how to do it any other way. And, it, and it's, you know, how do we change the culture to really start to put um, data and, you know, red doesn't mean bad, red just means there's a problem, we've got to fix it. And so we're really getting good about 
visual dashboards and ways to sort of show us where the pain points are so that we can make it efficient. So, I mean, I certainly, that's the way my mind works, but it's the beauty is that's, that's the way the, a lot of people's mind works at Bluebird. And we recognize that we're sort of in our awkward teenage years to some extent, right? Where we're, 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 we know that we're, we're, we're on the precipice. We, we've got some commercial approval, but we also know that um, there's a long way to go and there's a lot of improvements to make, but um, it's awesome. I think across the board, there's a recognition and we're really trying to optimize the way that we look at our data, look at our performance, um, and then want to improve it. That's, that's always the goal. Nice. Um, no, so I want to pick up on something you said there. I, I, I unashamedly refer to the biologics field, for example, as more mature and more commoditized than cell and gene therapy. I, I don't have any issue with, you know, as a teenager uh, admiring adults. Um, and, and I think uh, you know, we get exposed to that a tremendous amount with our late stage clients who are, you know, one side or the other of the, of the, the BLA, MAA uh, and approval. And, um, you know, regulators love great clinical data, uh, but they do not give out any free passes in you know, CMC or commercial operations, uh, anything of that nature. And they are, I, I think correctly, um, extremely cut and dried in, in, in that regard. So I think uh, you know, Bluebird's strategy, as I, as I see you know, Jan's, Jan's strategy unfold over the years, of, of proactively hiring in, um, you know, to overextend the, the metaphor, adults, um, is, is really going to pay off. I remember the time where in the 90s when Genentech uh, went through hiring binges uh, from GE, and not even GE Healthcare, GE, and, and the military. Because both of those organizations knew the heck how to organize things. Yeah. And they had a strong respect for the chain of command and organizational structure. And, um, you know, it was a phase and it wasn't a perfect phase, um, but it definitely was instrumental in turning Genentech from a late stage R&D company into a world-class commercial operation, uh, which made them a good fit uh, when Roche started increasing their uh, equity position and ultimately uh, uh, acquired the whole thing. Mm. So I, I'm sort of unashamedly, you know, I, I've loved growing up with, uh, with Sound Gene, uh, but I think uh, you know, we, we need to look to these more mature industry segments and your CPI experience and uh, the, when we see more and more, you know, we're hiring more and more belted Six Sigma people into our organization uh, and we welcome that stuff. Oh, nice. Well, let's dive into the meat of our show. And um, typical format is that each guest gets to ask a question and then Anthony normally asks the question at the end as well. And why don't we kick things off, Lance, with, with you first and, and your question? What do you sure. want to ask us? Yeah, thanks. So to set it up a little bit before I ask the question, I'll explain a little bit about the position that, that, uh, that I'm in and, and why I'm asking the question. So um, we're in the middle of 
doing process validation runs, PPQ runs um, uh, for a viral vector uh, manufacturing. And, you know, the, the process that we run, it's with a CMO, they're doing the actual manufacturing and we're overseeing it um, as the sponsor. And they're in the EU and we're in the US and everyone's homebound, right? And so I think one of the things that we run into in this global pandemic situation is um, how do we collaborate better when we're physically removed? Um, you know, there's the Teams meetings and there's teleconferences, but we've also got different time zones. Ideally, if we were in this and we've done this before with other, with other CMOs, we actually have folks physically in the site, person in plant, whether it's quality or technical, um, and and where we find ourselves right now, that's not an easy thing to do. So, you know, the question would be, are there out of the box ideas, or or what kind of things maybe has this panel or other folks experienced when it comes to understanding? There's there's to a certain extent, you the the person in plant and that physical touch or that personal touch and physically close to each other. Uh, has a lot of benefits. So what are some ideas or strategies that people have used to, to kind of overcome that hurdle? Or do we sort of resort back to that model and you look at different ways to actually get people to the physical location? So I'm really curious in the panel's perspective on helping to solve that kind of a problem. This is a very, very cool question. Um, especially, well, obviously, yeah, during these times, um, it's obviously put you guys in a very, very difficult position. Um, what, do you, what do you think, Anthony? Why don't you start? Uh, I mean, Lance, I don't know how you do it. I, I don't know how you're doing it. It's, it's sort of the original nightmare. And we're living it too, uh, through many of our clients. Um, but there's only, you know, if you've got to show up to work, you can't, you, you can't make viral vector in the spare bedroom, right? Right. Um, we, we've, we've, we've done, we've done a few things. Uh, one of the areas where it's hit us hard, uh, has been in the audit area. Uh, we do a lot of auditing, um, technical audits, quality audits, diligence audits, and so forth. Uh, we did put out a white paper on our website about virtual auditing, uh, which I, I think our quality people did a terrific job on and I really you know, challenge them. You know, one of the things we do is we ship GoPro cameras to the audit sites. Oh, wow. And during the audit, uh, the, uh, the people being audited were the GoPro cameras. And uh, it's sort of a bit, you know, a bit weird. It's a bit sort of remote control-ish. You know, go to that filing cabinet, please. Pull out the file on blah, blah, blah. Open it. What do you have there? Hmm, let's see. A PDF of that one, please. We'd like to take a closer look, that sort of thing. Um, we also um, come up with the concept of um, provisional remote auditing where we, uh, we will do everything I just described and then we will issue a thumbs up or a thumbs down on the audit but in the context of a thumbs up uh, we make a, a mutual commitment between the two parties uh, to receive a short in-person audit at the earliest next opportunity and reserve the right to revoke any a decision made during the during the uh, remote audit. We do not believe that remote auditing will ever be sufficient. Okay, uh, but we also believe that you can't just you know throw up your hands in despair. Uh, so that's the compromise uh, we've brokered, and uh, so far it's been uh, well received. Uh, haven't lost any GoPros yet, 
and uh, that's so that's a sort of rather feeble and, and, and trivial example of what we're doing. Um, but I, I want to know how people who have, well, here's the thing for, for you and Nina, actually. So, you know, standard SOP in a GMP facility is if you show up with a fever or the sniffles or an open cut or wound on you, on you, you know, you're out. Okay. You know, go home and, uh, come back when you're, when you're better. Um, is it, the same as that, only more stringent or drastic, or people suddenly actually pay attention to the SOP. Uh, what's what's going on in, in your you know in your experience? Not just you, but the, I know you all have friends uh, in the business. Uh, what's going on there? So for what I'll what I'll say is that we do still have folks at Bluebird that physically work in the labs, and so I think there's a whole uh, you know there's checks and and there's processes in place to make sure that people are healthy. And I, I think a lot of it's sort of self-reporting, but then there's also a capability to, um, you know, perform testing or, or have them go get testing. From a CMO perspective, I know each CMO is a little bit different. We've got quite a few in our network. And I think at the, the common theme is, um, yeah, I think everyone takes it very seriously. And I think there's, there's an, an element of, you know, having to report if, if you have any of those symptoms. I'm sure, you know, in some CMOs, they're actually doing temperature checks and they're doing, they're doing more physical checks on the site because they can control that versus, um, you know, having someone self-report. So I think you get a mixture of different things depending on, you know, the location and, and you know, the environment and where they feel that they need to mitigate risk. My team is field-based 100%, and so uh, apart from the fact that they're, most of them are very extrovert and they're climbing the walls, uh, being, being uh, holed up at home, um, we've, been, we've been doing most of our work remotely through, I mean, just regular Zoom or, or Teams calls. Um, we've also done evaluations of our equipment remotely, um, either by shipping equipment to customer sites and training them remotely by video um, or customers sending us their cells and us running uh, work in the labs. So we are, I mean, on, on the R&D development uh, as well as on the CDMO side, uh, nothing stopped, uh, but we staggered instead. Really? We just, yeah, we just staggered wow. shifts. I mean, you just say that, but the fact that nothing stopped where like it seemed half the world stopped no that's crazy but but equally um for for our customers so we we continue working with our customers and and, and most of them are still working right you know what was that specific example i wanted to go into a bit more detail on it the first example you gave about shipping equipment one mm -hmm. way or the other what describe to me what was the old normal and now what's the new thing you're doing exactly Okay, so then the old normal uh, in all my roles, uh, company independent, uh, has always been that we would uh, take equipment to a customer site and a qualified person would demonstrate the, the equipment uh, with regards to the customer process. So, in, so generate customer relevant data, but we would run it and demonstrate it and, and be hands-on, very much hands-on, um, mainly because the equipment that I have commercialized over the last five to six years was always completely new to the market, completely different to what has been out there. So you can't just 
ship something and say, okay, here's a new electroporator or a new um, PCR machine or whatever it was and, and read the manual and we'll do some training online, right? It, it was a lot more involved. And so that obviously doesn't work right now. Um, we've done a little bit of work uh, with customers who already had equipment where we needed to do in-person interventions, um, you know, do, do an annual maintenance uh, visit or something like that. And that was ultra regulated in terms of just, I mean, industry standard, I think at the moment where you need to adhere to the hosting customer sites, uh, health and safety regulations, you need to square them off with your own and say, okay, they're overlapping. You track, you get, an, you get a briefing up, up front on who are you going to meet? Uh, you get names so you can track and trace if needed. Um, and then you need sign off from, from above that, that you're okay to go. Um, but yeah, it's just been very, very tightly controlled if we go out. Um, but internally, we've, I mean, we, the industry has such a high demand for, for progress right now. You can't stop. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the theme we were talking about before we got started, right? Michael is, uh, we can't just stop. Yeah. We learn these skills. And I also think that the other, the other scenario you, you mentioned, Nina, was also quite interesting. Was that another scenario of where the typical scenarios you say your your technology would be on site at a customer, but you mentioned that the customer is now potentially sending back the sales to you. Yeah, we had that. Which that yeah. must create a whole bunch of additional dilemmas because you probably didn't originally have capacity for them anyway. Like, yeah, where did you find that capacity from? <laughs> I mean, I think if we have learned one thing over COVID, uh, all of us in, in this in the biotech industry is that, you know, creativity wins. Um, and so you just look at what your capabilities are, you look at what your capacity is and, uh, um, you know, you make it work. I mean, we've, we've done, we used VR glasses uh, at some point and, and some of our colleagues I know are using them for virtual quality visits and, and uh, facility yeah. validations and things like that. And they're actually quite cool because um, you have, you can directly um, interface with it um, and, and direct the, the wearer to, you know, look at something specific and it's as if you're there in person, but it also monitors and records all the steps that you have done. Yeah. The part that I'm absolutely have no clue about is how does that work from a regulatory perspective? Does that even mean anything or is it a nice checkpoint? But in order to actually get fully validated facilities, et cetera, I'm not sure uh, the regulators have fully caught up with that. But I mean, yeah, this industry right now has a massive opportunity to be creative. You know, Nina, my, my neighbor, literally my next door neighbor is in sales for Google Glass. And uh, he's been buried with with, with work. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I, I think you make raise a really interesting point in questioning the compliance, mm. because you know, and the, and establishing the veracity of a Google Glass or whatever it is uh, download. Obviously, there's opportunity for impropriety there, uh, or even criminality. Uh, when stakes are high, but I think, um, you know, I, Michael knows this because we had this conversation on a regular basis. And yet it's my belief that in a few years time, less will have changed as a result of this pandemic than we may at, at, in the 
deepest dark of night think uh, will change. I think things will go back to a situation which is much closer to how they were before the pandemic than anything else. But some things will change. And uh, maybe um, VR technologies like Google Glass and others, and I'm sorry I'm maligning all of Google's competitors by omission here, uh, maybe this is that. Maybe this is part of their moment. And I know a um, I know a chap out of King's College. We talked about King's College last week as well, didn't we? Yeah. Um, but there's a chap yeah. out of King's College that's looking at um, new technologies, and they're using VR for um, extremely um, for extremely difficult operations, uh, surgery from um, from yeah, coast from different parts of the world. So a highly skilled surgeon can perform yeah. a uh, very technical um, operation um, completely remotely with VR. And as you say, you know, um, the, the gloves as well, that you know, is yeah. actually you know, using those gloves to handle the tools on a site that might be you know, several thousand miles away. So yeah. if- we looked, at, we looked at exactly that when I was still in Scotland for the remote yeah. parts of Scotland, how do you service them? I mean, at the time it was just due to the remoteness, but I think uh, we may- The remote Scotland. We may come in leaps and bounds now thanks to COVID where, where this is becoming the new normal and, and where the technologies will just make a massive jump in terms of what they can yeah. do and what we can yeah. do. And I think uh, remote, remote areas of Africa, remote areas of, you know, wherever will we'll ultimately really benefit or hopefully can benefit yeah. from this. No, I think you're right. I think you're right, Nina. I think some things will change. I have to go back to Lance, you're doing PPQs in Europe and you can't be there. That must be killing you. I mean, I, I just can't imagine. I'm a control freak at the best of times. <laughs> I just can't imagine. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a self-admitted control freak as well. So it is, it is uh, very difficult. But um, yeah, and I, I think, you know, you guys touched on some of the things that we're looking to do. And I think it's been a trial by error. And, and just, you know, the more we, I'll just say that the, the the perspective is evolving, right? And I think one of the things that we're looking to do is kind of this virtual person implant, right? Where um, it wasn't GoPro, but I really like that idea because what we're looking to do is maybe have tablets or something set up so it's on the manufacturing floor and, and our folks can actually be there and to observe the operations and be able to talk to people directly because that's really the piece that you miss is being able to visually see it, um, being able to help troubleshoot and and to be able to talk to people directly and kind of help um, solve technical issues or whatever it is. So that's really been the, the key um, challenge. And so we are looking to do the virtual person and plant. Um, but, you know, I hadn't considered the GoPro as a really cool way to do it because you actually yeah. get the operator's perspective. That's really cool. There's a combination of those two, though. The ISCT at one of their conferences, they use these, these basically like these robots, right? The, like oh, no. a, a little R2D2 that has a yeah. grow, has a tablet face that could be your face and then arms and then you can remote control it from your home over to your, you know, the conference round table that you want to be attending. But yeah, I'm going to put one of those in your office right, right now, Michael. To... Sorry? 
I'm going to put one of those in your in your office right now. And Anthony's my, just always on my, my shoulder. Anthony robot wandering yes. around. That'll go down. <laughs> no, I mean, actually, you know, all joking apart, they have those things in some airports. They have them in, in Incheon yeah. Airport in Korea. And you can, you can ask it where your gate is and scan your ticket and where can I get a burger or, you know, whatever. And um, I had to begrudgingly admit it sort of kind of works. And so these little chappies are running around the airport trying to help people. Uh, and it'll even allow you to uh, get your photograph taken. Creativity it. out of necessity. We went with GoPro. You know why I went with GoPro? Because everyone's kids got one. I mean, it was as, as simple as that. So everyone, well, everyone, you know, tons of people know how to use them. We could have gone with fancier ones or more sophisticated ones. And again, I apologize for the specific brand mention. Uh, but we, you know, GoPro is almost like Kleenex. It's sort of a synonym for those those camera things you put on your bike helmet, right? right. Um, and, and it was as simple as that because there is an adoption issue with this new technology, okay? And you've got to reduce, we felt you have to reduce that as low as possible for this even to have a chance of working. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's, we like they're, it. They're really simple. I've got one as well. But um, I should officially say that this episode is not sponsored by GoPro. Um, or, or Google. What do you mean? Is it time to go pro, Michael? Yeah. Um, enough of this amateur stuff. Look, conscious of time, I think we should bring on our next question. So our next question is, and thank you very much, Lance, for, for, that, for that first question. As you can see, I'm sorry it, got about heated. it got us thinking of science fiction and thinking of the future, which is really, really cool. So thanks for that question. Nina, over to you. Yeah, this is a little bit of a gear changer in terms of question. Um, so my question is, um, I'm fairly new to the US. I moved here again after I've been here before, but I moved here about two years ago. And uh, I think we've already touched on COVID and, and the situation right now in terms of remote working. But another thing that as a non-US person in the US has kind of occupied my mind over the last six months or so is, is this question about diversity and inclusion um, and what I as an individual can do in that space. And it kind of got triggered obviously by recent events uh, and what's going on in the industry um, as a whole or in, in society as a whole, I should say, but also in terms of when I uh, look at when I recruit and the kind of um, applicants that I that come across my table I have to mm. admit that it's a very male white um, uh, mix of, of people um, I'm not saying they're not qualified it's just it's just staggeringly um, <laughs> I to say monotonous that sounds wrong but uh, you get where I'm going yeah. so I, I, I started looking into this and you and I have talked about this in the past and, and I've kind of um, also reached out to, to various friends to say what can I do to, to get a broader applicant audience um, so that I'm, I can at least be assured that I'm that my my ads go out in the right direction and, and are seen by the right people um, uh, and then it's on me, obviously, to 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 take it further at that stage. But how can I at least get over that hump? And one of the, the things that I was confronted with, um, and it's it's a little bit new to me being here in the U.S. I've not really seen it in that in that uh, extreme version elsewhere. Was um, that a lot of people told me, well, 
you don't come across as inclusive and diverse as a company. And I have to um, very strongly state that I'm speaking as an individual here and not on behalf of my company, but um, I was also made aware that, you know, unless you can demonstrate that you have senior people of um, color and diverse members of staff very openly visible, you will have a very hard time attracting talent. And so for me, this is a chicken and an egg question. I don't know how to, how to break it really. Um, so my question to you, any thoughts, recommendations that, and things that I can do better to do my part as an individual? That's, um, you're right. Like of the two things that are dominating our world right now, it's uh, dealing with COVID and, uh, and also the recognition after the death of, uh, of George Floyd. But, you know, there are several um, industries, sectors and pockets of community that have been um, under, you know, that have been underrepresented when it comes to diversity and inclusion and um, many organizations that could be better and you know my our the conference industry is is definitely one of them and you know in terms and, and as well as the life science um, community as well and the biotech community so you know I, it, I hear that that problem that you that, that you're talking about Nina it must be it must be sort of almost frustrating to an extent that you you're trying and you want to uh, to to create as much opportunity uh, as possible um and that i suppose to an extent that's that's where it starts isn't it you want to create the opportunity rather than you you can't you can't um manipulate the results but you can create the opportunity as best as you can and um yeah i suppose it, it starts there and you know it's something that you know i it's no secret that we can't recruit right now. So, you know, the conference industry is definitely not going through growth uh, right now. But when we do start to, um, I know that our organization is, is looking at making significant changes in, in how um, bias is removed from, from that recruitment process, um, for sure. Um, but one thing that I thought about quite a lot is, well, are we looking in the right places to... Um, to create those opportunities as well. So, yeah, I suppose that might be, that, you know, maybe that's somewhere to start is, you know, what are, what are, what's everyone got to share around, you know, looking in the right places. And, um, you know, Lance, I know that, I mean, one of the, re you know, I love Bluebird Bio because for some reason, I just absolutely associate them with, um, with inclusion and diversity and, uh, and bringing young people, um, uh, from underprivileged backgrounds to get a glimpse of what's happening in this industry as well. So I'm not sure, you know, have you got any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I, I do have some thoughts and um, you're right. I think Bluebird, one of the things that attracted me to, uh, about Bluebird is that they were so sort of out in, in the front and, and really seeking that. And it was very obvious through, you know, social media and, and just sort of the way that Bluebird I don't want to say market itself because it's actually all legit and real. And it's, and it's really what they, what, what we at Bluebird are striving to do is to, to draw people in from many different diverse backgrounds, um, diversity across a lot of different spectrums. And so I think you have to be really intentional about it. You have to let people know that, that you're seeking it. Um, obviously right now in this, in this environment, I thought, I think a lot of people are trying to strive for that. Um, 
but I don't think that you necessarily have to have senior leaders that, that have a certain, I don't know, uh, profile or a different diversity. I think that helps certainly, but I think a commitment to be heading in that direction speaks volumes too. So it sounds like you're doing that. Um, the other thing I, th I think, Michael, you're, you're right in that you've got to be seeking out and looking in the right places. I think that's, that's another aspect of it. Um, I know Mass Bioed, they've been doing um, work uh, we call it career ambassador. I actually serve as a career ambassador for them. And they're actually starting to partner with historically black colleges. That's just one you know, segment of diversity um, to let people know in, in life sciences degrees that biotech is even out there. You know, for me, I stumbled upon it, uh, quite honestly. I was a zoology major. I didn't really know what biotech was, um, but it came through networking and talking to people and I, and I learned about it. Um, so I think going out there and letting people know what's out there for, in the industry to the places where there is diversity certainly helps. Um, I think that's one. On the bias perspective, one of the things that we're starting to talk about are, are certain folks within Bluebird Bio. Um, a colleague of mine brought this up and it was a really good idea. Uh, her name is Diana Roses and she, we're talking about applicants, right? And there's a measure of bias just when you see names and you see colleges and things like that. But one of the things we've talked about is you know, should we take the name off of the applicant and you're just looking at the resume not knowing what the name is um, and how much bias would be eliminated just on something like that where you actually can't tell gender, you can't tell, right? So you can't tell male, female, um, et cetera. You can't, you, you don't know the names, you don't know nationality, you don't know any of those things. You're just looking at the merits of the applicant alone. Um, and I thought that was a wonderful idea. It's another way to, um, I mean, that doesn't help solve the, the diversity problem, but it certainly helps mm. with the bias and, and not forming bias. And I think that's a, a really, um, I think there's, you say there's the diversity um, challenge of, you know, can we be a, a more diverse organization or community or sector? And then obviously, you know, removing that bias. Just on the topic of um, can we, can we be more diverse? I also, um, yeah, as a conference organizer and you know, working in the life science space, I do think about what does, um, what does the makeup and, and, um, and of, of our conference audience look like and our speaker panels um, and, uh, and well, you know, even the panels on a podcast like this, for example. And, you know, Lance, you mentioned that it, it's got to be quite deliberate and, uh, and that's kind of like where equity comes into play rather than um, rather than saying that you're diverse, but not actually being absolutely deliberate about uh, with your actions around that. So, again, once we're allowed to start organizing conferences again, um, we've made a few baby steps in being really deliberate in what we want our panels to look like and um, our production team that invites speakers they've made a deliberate commitment to um, having a 40 percent female lineup and we're also committing to a number of what um, our uh, our agendas look like in terms of people of color as well um, so that you know we are sort of having um, you know we, we know where we were in previous years and we actually have a goal of where we want to go to because one thing that I was thinking about was what can you imagine if 
and I don't know whether biotechs have asked themselves this, but if we were to go a year of, you know, biotech inviting um, their senior staff and, you know, handpicking who goes to which conferences and so forth, and they looked back and did an audit at the end of the year of what was the makeup of the people that we gave conference tickets to, to come to events. And if they looked at, you know, the lot of the, you know, 300 grand they may have spent on conference passes and, um, you know, the couple of hundred people they sent all around the world to enjoy these great experiences, you know, was that a fair reflection of, um, you know, were they giving opportunity and, and, uh, and equity in, in, to the people that are normally underrepresented? So, yeah, we, for a couple of years now, we've invited free of charge, um, you know, working with colleges to invite people to come to our conferences from an undergrad, um, back from, from undergrads from, um, from diverse backgrounds to just come and enjoy the conference content to get exposure to um, this industry, to start building their network from a very young age and, and recognize that there are opportunities there for them as well. And, you know, it's something that, I, I would like to challenge biotechs and, and, and large organizations to, to really think about when they start selecting, you know, eat, you know and, and chat, you know, question, you know, with those five, six conference passes you're buying, who are they going to? And what is it that, that, that you're trying to achieve from that? And really sort of question that. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's probably quite, uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, controversial, but I think it's, I've got an, an off, I've got a platform where, you know, we can actually use that to make a difference rather than just the typical way of um, getting, you know, the CEO and, uh, you know, the, the, the heads of departments to represent the agendas. Um, but is there something that is, can we, can we be better in that regard? Yeah, I think there's a couple of really interesting points that I'd like to draw out. On the uh, sort of what you're saying, Lance, about strenuously trying to remain agnostic to, to bias by name or gender or apparent nationality. Uh, we had a really good experience recently hiring for a senior GNA position um, using LinkedIn. Uh, and LinkedIn, when you buy into their recruiting system, will sieve your candidates with acceptance criteria uh, that you write out. And those acceptance criteria we wrote as you know, X years experience doing Y, you know, uh, linguistics, ability to, you know, legality to work in where we want them to work and so forth. And that was a very, uh, you know, that, that was a machine doing it. And uh, we had no visibility into the people's names. You know, we didn't even see the ones which, um, which didn't make the cut. Uh, and the resulting, we got 37 qualified candidates for the position we were looking for. And it was a, it was a diverse group. And uh, you know, we end, for what it's worth, we ended up hiring a non-white woman for that position. Um, you know, historically, I, I have to make another call. I have to call out Jan Leslie. Okay, if there's an organisation with the, the good attitude that you're, you you describe at Bluebird, it does come down from the top. Okay, and I think uh, he's if you've ever spent any time with him at all, uh, it's it's pretty clear that he cares about the stuff you should care about. Um, yeah. So there's there's a free prop for your, for your boss there. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think we've been lucky at Dark Horse. We've had, you know, our board is 60% uh, non, non-white or non-male. Um, and it's just great. I turned down a very senior woman. I didn't turn it. She turned herself down because, ironically, she got promoted so high within her organization that she couldn't join our board anymore, which I thought was a bittersweet moment. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, Michael also, you, you can't argue with the facts. You have to, you have to make it, you have to go out there and proactively make it work. You, you can't put institutional bias back in, in, in any direction. It's uh, for a sustainable solution. It's got us, people's capabilities have got to stand on their own merits. And, uh, we've, I've said from day one, dark horse is a, you know, vigorous meritocracy with no, mm. no ceilings. Uh, at any level, glass or otherwise. One thing that I would like to pick up on what you just said, um, Anthony, and, and that is um, that this woman was promoted so high that you know she, she couldn't join you. And that is one thing that I have heard from um, members of the community when I reached out. It is like there are very few candidates that often fit the bill of what you're recruiting for. Um, and they're in such high demand, but but we there's there's not the breadth of um, of applicants and talent, and hence it's really difficult, even if you have a person that might be a perfect fit to to then actually recruit. Um, and I'm not I'm not sure I fully ag agree with that, but I think one one of the points that was made when I when I kind of reached out to other people and, and talked about this was we need to start a lot earlier and, and build more of a grassroots uh, that then grows up into a diverse community that can then feed um, into the higher positions. Um, and Michael and I talked about that a little bit and, and, and I think uh, having, having conference attendance of, of undergrads or even graduate students um, to even expose them to the industry and see what they can do. I didn't have that and it, I, you know, I, I took the most circuitous route into where I am right now um, because I never saw it, right? And I can only imagine and I had, I mean, I, I'm, I'm privileged in, in the sense of, you know, I, I'm highly educated and um, and, and had all the opportunities that anyone could ask for. I can only imagine how hard it is for somebody who doesn't have those opportunities, where it already starts with, if I go to college, it needs to be uh, to study something that will make enough money so I can pay my college education and can, can pay off my debt. That is not something that I'm personally familiar with because I had free university education. I never had to, to pay for anything. I came out of, with a PhD and an MBA with, without a, a dime of, of debt, right? And so those are hurdles that, that for me as a non-American are just difficult to understand and I'm, I'm slowly grasping them. But it means that when, when Michael and I talked, you know, should, if we talk about conferences for starters, should we not talk about how we as a, a silver or gold sponsor for Facilitate, for example, should automatically always sponsor two tickets, uh, including travel for, uh, for a student from a minority uh, background? Yeah, just just, just to open up those doors. So there you have it. That's the end of part one. And as you can tell, we really got into the topics there and ran out of time for Anthony to get to ask his question. Um, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. And if you did, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, share this episode with your friends and your network. 
And of course, sign up to become a member at facilitate.co.uk forward slash membership. Our members get access to exclusive content every two weeks, and you also get discounts at our events whenever we can run those again. So now that's all for this week, and we'll see you again for part two. Thank you.